Okay, so it's really good to see you guys. I want to thank you all again for the privilege and the joy of being able to come here and share God's Word with you. Um, We're going to open with a word of prayer. After we get finished with prayer, we're going to turn to the book of Genesis. And we're going to be looking at um, the uh, bride of Isaac. We're going to see Isaac gets a bride. It's one of the old stories in the Old Testament. So um, let's pray and then look over this uh, sheet real quick and then we'll get started. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the work that he performed on that cross for us. Thank you, Jesus, for being our high priest and hearing our prayers, um, even when we don't deserve it. And and thank you, Holy Spirit, for for um, convicting us of our sins and regenerating our hearts and filling us with your love and your peace. Um, and thank you for giving us a love for your word. And so it's a love for your word that brings us here tonight. And I just ask you as we open up the pages of Scripture that you will open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds, and our lives to these truths. I pray that you will help us to see Jesus in all of them. I pray that you will help us to uh, be uh, always conforming uh, to your will through that word. I also pray that you will help us to uh, be willing and able to share these truths with others. Um, I pray that these words that we talk about tonight will convict us and stick with us and cause us to ponder the beauty of, and the wonders of, of who you are. And so please be with us now in this time of study. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you have this uh, piece of paper, for about the last couple of years now we've been doing this class. Um, just Tuesday night we skipped it and did a little topical thing. But this is pretty much our topic. And uh it's called Christ in the Old Testament. And um, how many books are in the Bible? 66. 66. And how many are in the Old Testament? Anybody know that off the top of their head? 39. 39. I think that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. We'd have to count. Point being is, how many of the books of the Bible are about Jesus? All of them. And that's something that we forget. We live in a world today where uh, Christians, especially Christians, especially evangelical Christians, we have this tendency to divide the Old Testament and the New Testament up and say, well, that was the way that God worked back then and this is the way that God works now. But the reality is God has never changed. God has never changed. His plan, His plan of salvation has always been the same since the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. Now, as we've gone through history, that plan has become more apparent. As it's been played out in the lives of his, the nation of Israel, as it's been played out with Christ clothing himself in humanity and coming and dying on the cross to save us, as he has ascended into heaven, as he has sent his Holy Spirit to come and, and teach us these truths, they become more evident. And so we can look back on the past, right? What's it saying? Hindsight is 2020. So we can look back on the past and we can see now in the Old Testament things that the prophets uh, and the people of the Old Testament wouldn't have been able to see, but they were truths nonetheless, and they were just as applicable truths then as they are now today. And the one uh, thing that glue holds all of that together is Jesus. He is the story, and it's all about Him. And so I want to remind you of a passage of Scripture. You can see I've got your two uh, Scriptures quoted there from the book of Luke. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried three days later. He ascended. Uh, he rose from the dead. And he spent about 40 days with his disciples teaching them and before he ascended back up into heaven. And so this first passage, he's talking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, They're all sad. They're all broken because their Messiah, the one that was supposed to come and save them from Rome and save them and set them up as kings on the earth. 
had died on a cross. He, he didn't do what he said he was going to do, or so they thought. But the reality was, in dying, he was accomplishing victory for his people. And so now he's walking with these two disciples. And I want you to watch what Jesus says. And Jesus said to them, this is Luke 24, 25 through 27. Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all of the scriptures. Now, if you notice, Jesus did not go to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus and say, hey guys, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What, what passage of scripture is that? John 3.16. And why did Jesus not quote that to them? Because it was going to be about another 30 years or 40 years before it was ever written. One of the things that we forget about is all of the stories that we read about Peter and Paul and James and John, all the apostles, after Jesus ascended to heaven, is they were going around proclaiming the gospel, but there was no Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Those books weren't written yet. So how were they going around and teaching people the gospel of Jesus Christ? Through the Old Testament. Through the Old Testament. Through the Scripture. Look what it says again. Foolish and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. That's in the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. That's exactly right. A prophet is someone who speaks for God. And he says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter in His glory? So apparently in the Old Testament it was told that the Christ would suffer. Isaiah 53, right? The suffering servant. Y'all have all read that? right? That was a prophecy of what was going to happen to Jesus. And it says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. So he pointed them to the Old Testament and said, it's all about me. Okay. Now, after this passage, uh, the next passage, Luke 24, 44-45, is when Jesus first appears to the, the disciples in the upper room. And look what he says to them. Now Jesus said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. What words is he talking about? The scriptures. These are whose words? My words. Who gave Moses the Ten Commandments on top of Mount Sinai? Jesus, right? They're his words. All right? All the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All right, so what happens? He points them to Moses. Now, what books did Moses write? First five. First five, what's it called? Pentateuch. Very good. Pentateuch means five, right? And Pentateuch means scrolls, five scrolls. All right, so the Pentateuch is the first five books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right, the first five books of the Bible. Who wrote those? Moses. All right, then he said the law of Moses and the prophets. All right, who were the prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, all those guys, right? Those are prophets, right? Those are all the prophets. How many of y'all going to get to heaven one day and run into Habakkuk and he's going to say, how'd you like my book? And you're going to say, well, I didn't read that one. <laughs> right? How many, right? Have you read Habakkuk yet? All right, well, Habakkuk, guess who Habakkuk is really about? Jesus. Habakkuk. Yeah. Habakkuk. Either way, it's okay. You can say it either way. Right? Pecan, pecan, pecan. Pecan pie is very good. And if you want to call it pecan, it still tastes like pecan pie. 
All right. So, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right now, we've brought this one up in the past often, and I hope you'll remember this one. This is one of my favorite ones. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside still borders. Now, think about that. That was a song that the Jewish people would sing at synagogue or at the temple. Just like we just sung, Oh, Victory in Jesus. Right? Y'all remember we just sung that song a minute ago? What other song did we sing tonight? What's another one? The Old Rugged Cross. All right. So, all, somebody, when we played Old Rugged Cross, they said, oh, there's Old Baptist song, right? It brings back memories of when you was a kid, when you was in a church, and there wasn't no air conditioning. It was hot, and they had fans, and it was, right? You remember that. Well, when the Jewish people would go to the temple, they would sing the songs because it helped them to remember, remember them. And not only that, they were to hide those words in their heart. And the way that they would hide those words in their heart was by singing the words to it. So Jesus, as a little boy, when he would go to the temple, when he'd go to synagogue, would sing Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down green pasture. He would sing that. And then one day, a couple days before he was going to get nailed to the cross... He looked at a bunch of men who hated him, and you know what he said to them? I am the good shepherd. You've been singing about me all these years. See, it's all about Jesus. You see how that works? And when you begin to understand that, then the Old Testament comes alive. Now, the Jewish people, Paul said that the Jewish people read Moses and there's a veil over their face. They can't see it. They don't grasp it. Because they think it's about them. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Look at me. I don't steal, I don't kill, I don't commit adultery. And then what did Jesus say to them? If you look at a woman and lust over her, you've already committed adultery. And they're like, oh, wait a minute now. I've never cheated on my wife. (laughs) And Jesus said that the law is about your heart. He said it goes deeper than that. And they couldn't see it because they were thinking physically and he was talking spiritually. See? So they had a veil over their face and they couldn't see it. Well, after he died on the cross, after he rose again, after he fulfilled all of those scriptures and taught them to his disciples, look what it says at the end of that, about 24, 44 through 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have not been written yet. So what that tells me and you is we should be able to go into the Old Testament and teach Jesus just as we can, good as we could if we went to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So that book is not necessarily about the apocalypse. Well, it is, but it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus the conqueror conquering all of his enemies. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, it's not called revelations. Don't put an S on the end of it. It's only one revelation. And who? And, it, and, and if you look at the subtitle in your Bible, it'll say the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revealing of Him. And that's what all of Scripture is. All of Scripture is a revealing of who Jesus is. So, why is it important that we see Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, number one, that's the way Jesus taught His disciples. And if Jesus uses that as his model for teaching, then I'm going to do the same. How many? I want you to listen when you go to any church, when you have anybody that comes up here and teaches you, watch how much their focus is on Scripture 
as opposed to their focus on experience or feelings. Or you and your psychology and your philosophies. and You see what I mean? And I, I'm just as guilty as anybody else that would come on here and stand here. But what I have learned to do is focus on the Scriptures and teach people about Jesus in the Scriptures because the more I teach people about Jesus, the less I teach people about me. You can't learn anything from me about how to sin. You see, I'm just like we're all fallen human beings. But when I teach the Scriptures, I'm teaching you about your Lord, your God, your Savior, your Creator. And that is the method, that's the tool He's given us to know Him. Right? So, Jesus taught His disciples that way. Now, number two, the entirety of Scripture is theocentric. Right? Uh, my shirt says, theology matters. What does theology mean? The study of God. So, theo would mean what? God. And if, if the Bible is theocentric, what does that mean? God-centered. It's God-centered. That's exactly right. And not only is it theocentric, but it's Christocentric. Because Jesus is God. Okay? So, the entirety of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is theocentric and is our means of knowing God. Number three, Jesus is God and has revealed Himself to through us through the declaration and the fulfilling of His promises, His Word. Right. So you can go back and look at the Old Testament and look at all of the prophecies that Jesus has already fulfilled. And what does that tell you? That tells you that Jesus always, if He's fulfilling these prophecies, these promises, if Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies, these promises, what does it tell us about Jesus and His promises? He always keeps them. So in the same way that He fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies, there's going to be more. There's more prophecies in the Bible than just what He fulfilled at the cross, right? So what does that tell you? They're going to come true. Do you remember when Jesus um, went in the synagogue? Yes, sir. I know a bunch of prophecies came true, but are there any of the prophecies that they made that did not come true? No. If it didn't come true, what would happen? Uh, I just never did the math. 100% of every prophecy in the Old Testament happened. Some of them have not been fulfilled yet. But we can look at the Old Testament prophecy that have been fulfilled and know that God always keeps promise. So let me give you an example of that. Here's one that has not been fulfilled. Here is one that has, well, some of that has been fulfilled. So here's one that hasn't been fulfilled and hasn't been fulfilled. Do you remember when Jesus went in the synagogue and opened up the Bible and he said he opened up the text of the book of um, Isaiah and it said he and he spoke to the people and he said, uh, how did it, uh, I've come to heal. Uh, let me. Where is this? It's in the book of Luke. And basically what he says is the day of the Lord is here. And today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your ears. Y'all remember him saying that? Okay. I wish I, I wish I'd have wrote it down to the quote because basically what it says is he has come to bind uh, the brokenhearted, to heal the brokenhearted, to give the blind sight, to cause the deaf to hear. Remember? And he said, and this day, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your ears. All right? Now, if you go back and look at Isaiah, what it says, it says he quotes everything that Jesus quoted, but the Isaiah passage goes on to say, and to pour his wrath out on the wicked. 
Well, when Jesus got up and read the Scripture, He stopped and didn't talk about pouring His wrath out. Because that's yet to come. That's still to come. When He clothed Himself in humanity, was born of a virgin and walked among us, why did He do it? To save us from our sins. He came to heal the cause the blind to see, the deaf to hear, to heal up the brokenhearted. You see? But the second coming. But the judgment will come later. So that one passage talks about him coming to save us and to judge us. But when Jesus came and opened up the scroll in the synagogue and started reading to his peers, right, to the, the Jews, he stopped short of reading the day of vengeance. The day of wrath. Why? Because that's yet to be fulfilled. Now, on the last day, that will be fulfilled too. See? So, Jesus is God and has revealed Himself to us through the declaration and the fulfilling of His promises, His Word. So, yeah. Tony, if if those prophecies are not fulfilled, then He breaks His promise. Uh, That's a side What's the guesstimation of how many prophecies have been Ten? <laughs> no, there's um, there's more than you could probably count. Really? I I've, I don't want to throw a number out there because there's probably some that I hadn't seen before. I, somebody told me like 355 of the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled in Christ. So in, in the Passover, remember the Passover, yes. the lamb, and it said you to cook the whole lamb and you're not to do what? Break any of his bones. Remember when Jesus died on the cross? No bones were broken. If they would have, if they would have went up, because remember they broke the other guy's legs, the two, other two thieves hanging anyway, and they broke their legs so that they would die. If they'd have come up and broke Jesus's legs, what would have happened? They'd not, they'd, it would have not fulfilled the prophecy. What do they say? He's already dead. We don't have to break his leg. Oh yeah. All right. See, you see how that works? Yes, sir. Okay. So. I cannot think of anything that has been more fulfilling to me in my study of Scripture as over the past five or six years, truly starting to get a grasp of Jesus being in the Old Testament as well as the New. It's opened up the whole Bible for me. There was a time in my life where I was really just a New Testament Christian. Yeah. You know? But the reality is, is when when God told Eve in the garden that one day she would have a woman, she would have a baby that was going to crush the serpent's head. Remember when he told her that? He said, you'll bruise his head and he will bruise your heel. He was saying that one day a woman's going to have a baby that's going to finally get the devil. It wasn't Adam's seed, it was the woman's seed. So all the way back in Genesis 3.15, God's plan that was already in place for a virgin to give birth to a son that would finally defeat the devil. So it's been there all along. And not only that, the Old Testament saints were looking for it. But like Moses, he who delivers us. Like they, they thought Moses was the Messiah. You know, they, they were always looking for that the one to come and, and save them. Because the Old Testament prophecies prophesied that one would. And they messed it up, didn't they? And we do the same thing. How many prophecy mongers we got running around saying that Jesus is coming back yesterday or the day before or June 12, 1988? But you know what? We screw it up, don't we? Why? Because we make it about us instead of about Him. I met a lot of people that say they were Jesus. Huh? 
Yeah, I, I bet he, I we used to work in a mental hospital with a chaplain. I've met Jesus, Mary, I've met all the disciples. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a lot of people who think they're Jesus. But there's only one Jesus. So, how do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, we see him in genealogies. What is a genealogy? Family trees. We're gonna be talking tonight about Isaac and he's gonna get a wife. And what's his wife's name? Rebecca and Rebecca and Isaac are going to have a couple babies. What's their names going to be? Jacob and Esau. So from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Right? Does that sound familiar? Well, it should because if you turn to Matthew chapter 4, you will see so and so begot so and so and so and so begot so and so and so and so begot so and so. And then you skip it because you don't know all those people. Right? Well, the reason you don't know those people because you don't read the Old Testament. But every one of those people's story is in there. Remember, remember Ruth, mm-hmm. and what was her husband's name? Boaz. Yeah, yeah. And what was her kid's name? Was it Obed? Maybe. Obed. Yeah. And then he had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David. David. Right. So all of those stories tying together. It's all about him. So now, when you go back and read so and so, but God, so and so, but God, but God, but God. There's a reason for that because it's showing you that he was the the son of David, the son of Abraham. He had to be the son of Abraham and the son of David. He had to be a king. He had to be from the kingly line. So he had to come from the tribe of Judah. He had to be one of Judah's kids. That means he had to be one of Jacob's kids, one of Isaac's kids, one of Abraham's kids. Family tree. So we see him in genealogies. We see him in prophecies. We've already talked about that. We see him in types and shadows. Um... Y'all remember a couple weeks ago, some of y'all were here, and we talked about how Abraham and his son Isaac were walking up the mountain, and Isaac had a bunch of wood on his back. Remember? Right? That should immediately make us think of Jesus walking up the hill to the cross. The promised son is carrying the wood up a hill. And what did he say to his daddy? He said, Daddy, we got the knife, we got the fire, we got the wood, where's the lamb? And what did Abraham say to him? God will provide a lamb. And then what did John the Baptist say say when he seen Jesus? Look, everybody, there's the lamb. You see? So all the way back in the Old Testament is is foreshadowing. It's types and shadows of who is to come. Themes, repetitive echoes, supernatural births, barren wounds. How many barren women that couldn't have babies all of a sudden have babies in the Bible? There's a bunch more than two. Mary, Sarah, Elizabeth. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. (laughs) If you go back and start thinking about it, right? All right. Uh, What what does that tell us? That uh, it has to be a work of God. It can't be a physical work of man. it has to be God's work. So, prophets, priests, kings, altars, sacrifices, older brothers persecuting younger brothers. Remember Joseph and his older brothers, right? And remember, um, let's see, Jacob and Esau, Esau persecuting his brother. And remember Amen. Isaac and Ishmael, Cain and Abel, Jesus and the Pharisees. Are you with me? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so when Moses wrote his part, and then these are all at different time periods, so I'm trying to think about how he, how the stories got in the beginning of the Bible if they didn't write it until 100 million thousand days later. How, yeah. how did they? Work? That's a great question. Um, so 
Let me answer that really quick. Um, do you remember? Look, turn over to John chapter 17 really quick. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying for his disciples. John 17. Um, 17, 7. Jesus is praying. He says, He's talking to His Father in heaven. He says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave to me, right? I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. Um, and uh, see up above that verse 6 I manifest your name to the men who were with you you gave me out of the world they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word and so um, he he says also let me see I ask on their behalf I do not ask on behalf of the world but of those whom you have given me for they are yours um then he asked about the ones that will let me see, let me see if I can find it. Verse twenty. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, my disciples, but those also who believe in me through their words. So you want to see what Jesus is praying? I'm praying that the words that these disciples write will point people to me and help them to believe. So he's actually praying that his disciples will be able to call to memory what he had taught them. And the Bible teaches us in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, it says all Scripture is God-breathed and given out by him. I mean, like like in Genesis, you know what I mean? Like Moses wrote that, right? Yep. Okay. They didn't start writing the Bible until a long, long, long time after that. So. No, Moses wrote it back then. So it was written down before. Yeah. Okay. And a lot of it, if you notice, a lot of the scriptures in the Old Testament are songs, like those songs. Why do you think they write them in songs? So really, they started writing the Bible a long time huh? ago. Yeah, well, not only that, but it's easy to remember the lyrics to music, oh. isn't it? Yeah. So they passed it down. And have you ever noticed that sometimes you read one chapter and it like repeats the same thing like 45 times? It says the same words over and over again? Yeah. But there's a reason for that because they're ingraining that in the people that are telling the story. They're passing it on. So it's passed on. So God inspired and God breathed into the men the words they wrote. Now, it wasn't like automaton. Like it, they weren't robots. They, all of them had their own personalities. They're, all of them had their own points of view. But God used all of them and their, their words. He inspired them and wrote those words so that, it, so that one day you would know. And in the same way that he protected the words that came from those apostles, from even from Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, he, he, he God commands them all the time. He says, "Write down these words that I tell you." Like so, they write them down, and God preserves that word through history. Right? So there's a lot of people. There, there's people in the world that think that if you read anything but a King James Bible, you'll go to hell. All right. The reality is, is that the King's English didn't come around till like you know the 1400s or so. You know, I mean, it I mean, the the King James Bible wasn't written until 1611. And there was a lot of people, my, my 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 Catholic buddy by there, that used to think that if it wasn't written in Latin, if it wasn't the Latin Vulgate, then you were reading a, a corrupt text. 
for a thousand years, the only Bible they had was the Latin Vulgate. They took all of the Hebrew, well, they actually took all the Hebrew and the Greek and translated it into Latin, and the whole church used Latin forever and ever. And then King James come along and changed it from Latin to King's English, and the people that used the Latin Vulgate said, oh, King James is you know, a heretic. He's, he's corrupt in the Bible. The reality is, is that these newer translations that you have today, God can protect His Word through translation. Like He can still... There are bad translations out there. There are some corrupt texts out there, but God protects His Word to make sure that it gets to who it's supposed to get to. Right? And so, I hope that none of y'all are... I, I wouldn't... There's not very many Bibles that I couldn't just... I've read most of the translations, and I really like all of them that I've read. I wouldn't read the message, that Eugene Peterson, the message is a corrupt text. I wouldn't mess with that at all. But NIV, NASB, you know, somebody had that H. Holman Christian Bible, um, the New American Standard Bible, the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV, they're all really good translations. But God has been protecting His Word since Moses put, wrote it down. Like He made sure that it got to the people that it needed to get to so that it could be passed on. Yes. Alright, so I don't want to take you too far off of your topic, but I got a question too. So, 2023 years ago was Jesus' era, and then maybe about 4,000 years before that to 6,000 years before that was when Moses wrote. 4,000 years, yeah. Okay, so my question is with everything being preserved throughout the ages and so forth, and with Jesus being resurrected and whatnot, who's to say that? Anybody actually existed? Like who's to say Adam and Eve ever actually existed? Or okay. Who's to say Moses actually? Existed? That's a really good question. How do I know that Adam and Eve even existed? Okay. This could all just be fictitious. Okay, it could be. All right. Now watch this. Turn, turn with me back to Luke chapter four. That's a really good question. How do I know this? Just isn't all made up. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 23. All right. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years old. He was being supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mattitat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattitias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Helsi, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathus, the son of Simeon. Are you all getting the idea of this? All right, jump with me really quickly over to 37. The son of Methuselah, remember the old dude in Genesis? The son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. All right, so what Luke, Dr. Luke is telling us is that Jesus is a direct descendant of who? Oh, God. He's the son of God, but who is his earthly dad? Adam. Adam. He's the seed of Adam. Jesus is the only person that's 100% God and 100% man, by the way. You and I can't be 200% of anything. We're 100% human. Jesus was 100% God and he was 100% man. He had to be a man because a man had to die for our sins, and he had to be God because a man can't raise himself from the dead. That's right. All right. So, if Adam is fictitious, then we have just cut Jesus off at the roots of his family tree. So you either take it at his word, or it's all a lie. 
You see how that works? Yes. Plus, wasn't that culture like really? Uh, they preserved their writings and and stuff when they wrote down uh, scriptures. And they were very particular about it. Yes. Them to the teeth. Them to yep. Every jot and tittle. Yeah, jot and tittle is what the King English says, but that's dot the I's and cross the T's, yeah, pretty much. Really right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there was people that that's what they did for a living. That's all they they were scribes. They just sat there and, and copied the stuff over and over. All right. So I hope that helps to answer it. So either this is God's word or it's not. And if you're in here and you're a regenerate person, then. There's no way that you can be a child of God and doubt that this is God's word. I've never seen anybody get up from the dead, so I have to take it at value. Yeah, you, it, it's either what it says it is or it's not. Right, and so the atheist will say, "Well, that's just circular reasoning, right?" You say, "You're just reading. If the scripture says that, you're just using circular reasoning." But the atheist, but the atheist is using circular reasoning too, because he's basing everything on what he thinks and what he knows. So he's the center of his circle. You see, the Bible uses God as the center of the circle. So it's all. Um, look really quick. Let's look at that Second Timothy passage. We really got off topic tonight, but that's okay. We probably needed to be here. Second Timothy three and sixteen. Everybody there. Second Timothy three sixteen. All. Scripture, how much scripture? All, all of it, is inspired by God, God breathed, and profitable for teaching. Right? That's what we're doing tonight. Reproof. What does it mean to reprove somebody? To tell them they're wrong. Right. For correction. Not only do we reprove people and tell them they're wrong, but we correct them in love. And that's what it's all about. It's about loving people and telling them what? The truth. The greatest expression of love is to tell people the truth. Well, the greatest expression of love is to obey God, love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and love your neighbor yourself. But the greatest expression of love that you can get to your fellow man is to tell him the truth. And it's hard to do that. It's hard to do. It's hard to tell people the truth. Why? Because we don't like the truth. Alright, so he says, for training, for righteousness, so that the man of God may be what? Adequate and equipped for every good work. So God has given us His Scripture so that we can so we can be conformed to His image. That's what He gave them to us for. And so that we can have truth. So that we can have something to really hold on to. And remember, the first question in the Bible. Who asked the first question in the Bible? Nope. Y'all don't know who asked the question? Who, who thinks it was Eve? Who thinks it was Adam? Who thinks it was God? Who thinks it was serpent? Well, let's turn back here and look really quick. Genesis chapter 3. First question mark in the Bible. First question mark in the Bible. Did God really say that you could? Yeah, it was a serpent. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God said? So what is the question? Did God really say that? That's what I just said. The truth. So I'm I'm reproofing and instructing you. All of our doubts come from doubting God's truth. All of our doubts. Not, Not just your and mine too. 
The reason I don't pray is because I don't believe God will answer my prayers. And the reason I don't believe God will answer my prayers is because He don't answer them the way I want them answered. That's right. So I, I cross my arms and poke my lip out and say, fine, I just won't even ask that. <laughs> but again, prayer is really not about you. No, it's not at all. Our Father, it's about Him. So the Scriptures are the truth. And they're what He has given us to know the truth so that we can receive the truth, so that we can believe the truth. And the only way that you can become a child of God is by hearing the Word of God. That's the only way. You can't, you can't be laying in your bed and have this vivid dream and God save you. God doesn't do that. How will they believe unless someone tells them? And how will someone tell them unless a preacher goes? How blessed are the feet that share the gospel, right? That's Romans 10. The way that God saves people is by having people tell other people the truth, God's Word, and that truth does what? Sets them free. God opens their ears, He opens their hearts, He opens their eyes and their minds so that they can actually say, you know what, that's the truth. Right? Okay, so of course we're never going to get Isaac in his... Isaac and his bride. Let's try. Let's try to get there. What a terrible thing! Here we have just completely gone off the rails. But I hope that this has answered some questions for you. Uh, the reality is, is that we do need God's word, and we need to be in it. You need to be in it. You don't need to get to heaven one day and say, Habakkuk, I never read your book, or Habakkuk, or you can ask him how to pronounce your name when you meet him, right? But the reality is, all Scripture is God breathed. And it's all about him. Even the boring stuff. Right. You really think they're going to ask us questions like that when we get there? Like, Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know. Nobody will lie. Everybody knows the answer. Yeah, well, she's a master. Why are you putting me on the spot like this? So right. All right. Let's turn really quickly um, to Genesis chapter... Alright, so we're going to do this really fast. I, I only have about 15 minutes left and I, I wanted to get through this tonight because I don't see y'all again until next month. Let's look at... Um, one of the things you need to remember is before we do Isaac and his bride is um, in chapter 23, Isaac loses his mom. Right? The death and burial of Sarah. And they buried Sarah. Now, one of the things that you need to remember, why is it that Old Testament saints bought, like Abraham bought a cave to put his wife in and bury her. And then he wanted to be buried with her too. And then they, Joseph wanted to come back to Canaan and be buried there as well. The promised land be buried. Why, are, why was it so important to be buried with your family? Record keeping. Record keeping? You're dead. You don't care if they keep a record on you. Symbolic? Well, it's not just symbolic. There's going to come a day when there's going to be a resurrection in there. Yeah. You want to be with your family. There was an understanding. In the book of Hebrews, it says it this way. Abraham was looking not for an earthly city, but a city whose builder and maker was God. Abraham was already looking for the eternal kingdom. So they think if they were buried together, they'd be raised up and they would be together. But the truth of the matter is, but what does Jesus teach us later on? We won't be married. Like if you have a wife here on earth, when you get to heaven, you won't be married anymore. Yeah. 
No, you won't. You won't. Because remember, they, the Pharisees asking the question, well, if, he, if she married this one guy and he died, and then she married his brother and he died, and then married that brother and he died, and married seven brothers and they all died, and then finally she died, who's who's going to be her husband when she gets to heaven? Right? <laughs> and what did he say? He said, we're, we're like the angels. We don't give in marriage when we get to heaven. Right? Marriage is an earthly covenant that God has given man so that he don't have to be lonely and so that he can procreate because we are we die like that's you know that's one of the things about the whole LGBT QRS movement like if they really practice what they preach you know well there won't be a movement because they'll all die out because they won't be having any kids but what they do is they cheat and they go steal some eggs from the embryo place and fertilize themselves and and or adopt and, and do those kind of things. But the truth of the matter is, is if the LGBTWXRB crowd would really practice, would really practice what they preach, then they would die out in a matter of 40, 70 years. They'd all be gone because they wouldn't have no, there wouldn't be no kids. God gave us the institution of marriage to have kids. Like that's part of it. That's a big part of it, right? What, what did He say? Blesses the man that's got a quiver full of them, uh, children. That's like Robin Hood, but put the arrows in your quiver, you know. So, man, we've gone into some rabbits tonight. Let's let's. <laughs> all right, Brian for Isaac, Genesis chapter twenty-four. Now Abraham was old; he was advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Why did He bless Abraham? Why did He bless Abraham? So He could bring him. No. So he, he, blessed, Jesus. he blessed Abraham because he promised Abraham he was going to bless him. God always keeps his promises. Did Abraham keep his end of the deal all the time? No, he lied. He pimped Sarah out to the king in Egypt, remember? Right? So Abraham wasn't always the great... I mean, he was a, he was a good guy and he was had faith, saving faith, and he was righteous, but he a mess up. But God always kept his, his, his part of the bargain. So Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge that he owned, he said, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites amongst whom I live. Who are the Canaanites? Those are all the wicked people that live in the land of Canaan, right? Remember when he told uh, his children, remember he said, don't, uh, don't be, Man don't lie with man, woman don't lie with woman. Uh, don't be sleeping with dead people. Don't be sleeping with animals. Remember, bestiality, necrophilia. He said, all oh, that's an abomination in his sight, right? Well, that's all the things that the Canaanites were doing. That's who they were, right? The first Planned Parenthood was the, uh, the Baal worshippers who used to burn their babies in a, in a brass casket with drums beating so you couldn't hear the baby screaming. Like they, and they would do that so that they... They they believed that by sacrificing their babies to the god of God Baal that they would get good crops and good harvest, and they would they would be prosperous. You see, it's the same thing when women today go in and get an abortion. They think if I can't financially afford to have a kid, so I'll just you know I get rid of it and then I can be prosperous. But, it, but I didn't really want to get off on all of that. But the point being is the Canaanites were some wicked and lewd yes. people. And when you read the book of Leviticus and you read all of those crazy laws, there's a reason for that. God was trying to teach His people to not be like them. I am holy, therefore you be holy. And this is the way you be holy. Don't act like those people. See? 
And so he said, um, I don't want you to him I don't want him to get a wife from these Canaanite folks. You'll go to my country, to my relatives, and take a wife from my son. Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Abraham said, Beware that you do not take my son back. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and he will take a wife for my sons from there. All right, so we're going to put get into rapid mode here because we literally only have a couple minutes left. So what does the servant do? He takes a bunch of gold, some camels, he packs up a big caravan, and heads off to to Abraham's homeland to find a wife for his for Abraham's son. Now it says um, in verse 11, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time. Uh, where women go to draw. Now, again, I'm wanting you guys to see Jesus in these passages, all right? Did anybody think of Jesus when they think about wells and women? Like John chapter 4, the woman at the well? How about Jacob? Doesn't he meet his wife at the well too? A lot of people meet their wives at the well. Maybe you need to go down to the fountain down there in the park and throw a dime in there or something. All right, but watch what he says in verse 12. This is really cool. This is what I, I love this. Because it says, he said, he, so this guy prays, and he says, Lord, the God of my master Abraham, grant me success today and show love and kindness to my master. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink and I will water your cameras also, may she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have loving kindness to my master. So he basically prayed and said, look God, I'm gonna, when I see a woman, I'm going to ask her to give me some water. And the one that you want me to get for Isaac so he can marry her will say, yeah, you can have some water and I'll water your camels too. So he's praying, right? What do we call it? What kind of prayers are those? What do they call it? Casting a fleece, right? Like, uh, what was it? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and he cast the fleece out. Uh, or was that Gideon? It was Gideon. We had to flee. He said, I don't know if I'm supposed to do that, God. I'm going to lay this fleece out, let it get wet, and let the ground be dry. And then the next day he went back and did it again. All right. So he's praying a specific prayer saying, God, the one that is supposed to be, let her say, yeah, you get something to drink and I'll take care of your camels too. So watch what happens. Before he had finished speaking, so before he could even get the prayer out of his mouth, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came with a jar on her shoulders. The girl was very beautiful. She was a virgin. She had not had a relation. She went down to the spring and filled her jar. Then the servant ran to meet her. He said, please give me a drink of water. Right? She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she finished giving him a drink, she said, I will also draw some water for your camel. So she's doing exactly what he had prayed that this girl would do. Like, she's given all the right signals. Like, this is how it's supposed to work. So anyhow, when the camel gets finished drinking, he gives her some gold. She runs back to her house, tells all of her family, hey, this guy's come here from a faraway land, and he, look, I got some bling on my ears and on my wrist. And her brother Laban, who is a crook, sees all that gold, and he runs out to be real kind to this guy. Like, come on in the house. We'll take care of your camels, blah, blah, blah. So let's go on now. Um... Verse 42, so he's with the family, and he's telling them the story. So I came today to the spring and said, Lord, God of my master. He's repeating it again. Remember, there's that repetition. They would tell this story to their kids, and their kids would repeat the story. And, and it's, it's pressing on them what? That God answers prayers. 
And it says, before I finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came, blah, blah, blah. I, I, you need to read this on your own. This is a beautiful story. Like This is one of the most like coolest stories in the Bible. Because it makes me wonder if like, because basically the servant said, look, my master is rich. And he's got a son and he needs a wife. Will you go? And she's like, yeah, I'll go. So she's going to pack up and leave all her family, everybody that she knows, and go meet this, go marry this man that she's never met before. And sometimes what I wonder is maybe she had been praying because they said she was, you know, she was of marrying age and she didn't have a, a know a man. Maybe she was praying too. Maybe she's tired of being single and she was like, you know, God, when when are you gonna get me a husband? Maybe she was praying that and she was carrying that jar up there to the thing. Huh? I I don't know. You can't ever tell about women. But anyhow, all of that takes place and she packs up and goes with him. Now I want you to look at verse 62. Now Isaac had come from going to Bel Beer Lahiroi. That's another well. That word beer means well. For he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards the evening. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, the camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes when she saw Isaac. She dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. She then took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all of these things. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Beautiful story, Isaac being comforted. Now, so what I think... this is speculation, and please don't take this for anything but that, that. But how do we know that Isaac wasn't sitting out there praying and like, boy, I sure would like to have a wife, you know, thinking about his mom and his dad and like, my, my dad had a good wife for all those years. Why can't I have a good wife? And here she comes over the hill, you know. And so, anyhow, uh, you would love to think they live happily ever after, but there's there's rough times for them too. Actually, the, Isaac and Rebecca, when you read the Old Testament, the patriarchs, the family of the Old Testament, saying like Isaac and Rebecca really don't have a whole lot of trouble, other than Isaac likes Esau and Rebecca likes Jacob, and they kind of play on one another, trying to get each one of them to get the advantage. You remember how they did that? And so, but when you read the story of Isaac, Isaac really is the only one that doesn't do anything bad. Like, you don't ever hear about Isaac doing anything off the wall. All right, now, where can I see Jesus in the Old Testament in that story? Can anybody see Jesus in that story? When he prayed at the well. When he prayed at the well. Okay, so the well, when we think of well, remember what Jesus said? He said, um, those who come to me will never what? Thirst. Thirst. All right. So a well is a place you go to get water so that you won't thirst. All right. Anybody there else? The, there was the woman at the well that Jesus... Uh, there was a woman at the well that he talked to, the Samaritan woman. Okay. There's one that's a little deeper. It's one under... Um, so we see him in the genealogies, right? Because Isaac is going to have Jacob, and Jacob's going to have Judah, and Judah is... So we see him in the family tree. And then the last one, and then we'll close because we've literally got like two minutes left. Um... I'm not going to have time to go through this tonight. I'm going to pass, I want you all to take one of these and read it on your own when you get a chance. How about the bride of Christ? Mm. How about a father sending someone to go find a bride for his son? Mm-hmm. That's 
We're the bride. Yes. And who did He send to come find us? Jesus. Well, Jesus came to die on the cross, but He the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And what did the Holy Spirit do? Come and wooed the bride and said, Will you come? And what did she say? Yes. Yeah, I'll come. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Yes, that's exactly right. And so who's the bride? We are. The body of Christ. And who is the groom? Jesus. Right? And so now when you read the stories in the New Testament about the marriage feast, or when you go to Lou's favorite book and go to the book of the Revelation, there's a marriage feast of the Lamb in there. Let's finish with that. Let's look at it. It's Revelation 19, I think. We'll finish with that and close with prayer. I promise, guys. All right, uh, Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Right? So why do women get married in white? Because it's a symbol of what? Purity. And then he said, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Now, it doesn't, it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. So that would indicate that there might be some people that aren't invited. Yeah. It doesn't say, Blessed are the ones that receive the invitation and come. Now, we are blessed when we receive the invitation to come. But the blessing comes in the fact that you were invited. Because Jesus said, My sheep know my voice, and when I call, they come. There's no doubt you'll come. If you hear the invitation, you'll come. And then I fell at His feet to worship Him, but He said to me, Do not do that. Uh, I am a fellow servant. Now, that's not Jesus talking. That's an angel that had brought, brought John to that, that vision. Uh, uh, I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Alright? So, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. We're blessed. And that mess, and not only that, but, you know, when you get married to somebody, uh, guys, you're, for some reason, we have to give them like, uh, like a, a year's salary and put it on a little piece of gold and stick it on their finger. Like for some, I, I don't know. I've never understood what that's all about, right? Oh, it's that plastic. Right? It's that right? plastic. Right? right. So the reality is, is you give them a ring, and what does that ring say? This one belongs to me, right? Hey, don't look at her, guys. Yeah, no, you're not even supposed to look. Don't even look. She got she's got the bling on her finger. Leave her alone. She belongs to somebody, right? Well, the ring is a seal. Of the covenant. Right? And for you and I, what's the seal of our covenant? What is the seal as a believer that we have in Christ? No. The seal. What is the symbol that God gives to us that tells the world hands off? That one belongs to me. Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is like the ring, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, 
So God woos you. I, I got to show you this. We got to see this. I know, I know y'all got home hamburgers. I mean, uh, donuts. But watch this. Go to 2 Corinthians with me. 2 Corinthians 5. Right? Okay. Look in. Y'all probably heard this before. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, all right, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what happens? Unbelievers have a veil over their face. Right? Remember what did what did uh, Rebecca put on before she went to go see Isaac? Put a veil on. When great girls get married, what do they put on their face? A veil. All right. And then he says this: um, <clears throat> For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants. For God, who said, "Light shall shine out of darkness," is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And it, so, what happens? Right. God sends His Holy Spirit. He woos the bride. And what did He do? He lifts the veil. And says, I do. He, commit, he, he commits Himself in a covenant, eternal covenant promise with the believer. It's a beautiful thing. And all of our weddings that we do nowadays are supposed to be a symbol of that. Like... It's a picture of God's relationship with us. So when you go back and read that story, I want you to do that this week if you get a chance. I also want to I'm going to pass y'all take these while I'm praying. Y'all can pass this around. This is just some notes about the bride of Christ. Some stuff that you can look at on your own because it is a beautiful story. It's a romantic story. It's a wonderful story. They live happily ever after. Blah blah blah. But it pictures Christ and it shows us the relationship that we have with Him. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your love. Thank you for caring enough about us to come and find us in, in our debt, being dead in trespass and sin and making us alive together with you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the beauty of your word. And I do pray that in the coming days, the folks that are hearing this uh, will grow in their appreciation and love uh, of your truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.